Lord, as we consider Your Word tonight, I pray that we would do so uh, with the, the seriousness and the joy, uh, even of what we're talking about right now, the life and death of this world. Seriousness because, Father, there are eternal things on, on the line at stake here. And, and joy because, Lord, we know that if we have been born anew by, by the blood of Christ, that we will be with You forever. And so I pray, Lord, just that Your Word would, would pierce our hearts tonight and show us what You'd have us to know. And draw us near in the comfort and peace of Your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be in Proverbs 4, if you'd like to open up your Bibles there. Actually covering a few less verses than we typically do, but don't worry, I can stretch it out. There are several coming days in Scripture. Several specific days that the Word tells us are approaching. The day of the Lord is one. Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 7 also calls it the day of Jacob's distress. Day of Jacob's trouble. You may have heard it referred to that way. And that is the day when the tribulation kicks into gear. And it's a time of judgment and a time of wrath and a time truly of distress in the world. And that day is coming. Now praise the Lord that as Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, you have not been destined for wrath, but for salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, the reality is, the truth is, like it or not, the day of the Lord is coming. Judgment day is coming. Judgment Day. Now, let me just point this out to you. Biblically, if we just follow the chronological and literal timeline of Revelation and other scriptures, what we discover is that Judgment Day doesn't happen until after the thousand-year reign of Christ. And that's, that's something to pay attention to. Jesus comes in His second coming, but that is not Judgment Day. He comes, He sets up the kingdom, He rules and reigns. Revelation 20 tells us six times for a thousand years. And after that is what the world thinks of as Judgment Day, where everybody is judged. Books are opened, Revelation 20 tells us. And those who wish to be judged by their deeds rather than by the grace of God will be judged on that day. That day is coming. If you're in Christ Jesus, that day is past. That day happened at the cross. Praise God, that happened 2,000 years ago. Man, when I was a kid, the idea of Judgment Day, I I had this picture in my mind of a huge screen and a long line of people and each person would step up and on the screen would flash all of the things they'd ever done wrong in their life and they had to answer for them and it freaked little Ricky out. (laughs) But that day's passed. There's 2,000 years between me and that day. Better spoken, there's an eternity between me and Judgment because the grace of Jesus Christ has washed me clean. Praise God. But there is a judgment coming for those who want to be judged on their works, on their deeds. But there's a day coming that I look forward to more than any other. And it is what the Bible refers to as the day of Christ. The day of Christ Jesus. A day different than all the others. Philippians 1.6, Paul writes, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He goes on further down in that letter, Philippians 1.9, he says, This I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. The day of Christ, the full day, as we talked about on Sunday. The church needs a vision. I shared with our shepherd Sunday afternoon that it was only toward about halfway through second service that I started to click in and understand what it was that I was teaching. That happens all the time. I started to get it. What was God doing in in Proverbs chapter 4, that first half as we studied through? What was He saying to us? And second service, I hit it a lot stronger than first. He's giving us a vision. A clear and unadulterated vision of the final day. A day to look forward to. The full day with Christ. And the church needs that vision. All kinds of books coming out all over the place. Gang, we don't need a new paradigm. We don't need a new philosophy. We don't need to reinvent ourselves to be relevant to this culture. 
I am so sickened by reading that and hearing that all the time. The church needs to reinvent itself because the old ways and the ways that the Bible talks about, well, they're a little too harsh for this particular culture. Hey, we don't need to reinvent anything. All we need is a vision, and the vision was already given. And the vision is of the full day in Christ Jesus. And it's a day that anybody can have. All it takes is calling upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And you will experience that full day. And consequently, I also believe many full days leading up to the full day. The day of Christ. We need a vision in the church that is bigger than now. And that's the problem in the world today. When we try to come up with a vision that fits this culture or this world, or our present circumstances, it's always going to be a short-sighted vision. It's never big enough. We need a vision that's bigger. And God has given it to us. A full day. Joanna was sharing with me last week, and she was standing at her mother's bedside, and um, her mom at this point was... Very narcotic up, you know, just to deal with the pain. Was kind of in and out. But she was still speaking. And Joanna said, I I couldn't remember if this was the last thing that my mom said to me or just close to the last. But she said, I'll never forget this. She said, my mom said, Joanna, I'm so excited for you. And Joanna said, Mom, what, what are you excited for? And she said, I'm excited for your vision. And then Joanna said, Mom, what's my vision? And her mom never answered. And Sunday, Joanna says she sat in here, and I had no idea about this. I hadn't heard about this. We're talking about the full day and a vision of the day that we are with Christ. And Joanna says she had chills going up and down her spine. Now, I don't know if that was the vision that her mom saw for her. I don't know if it was something else that's going to be before that full day. But gang, if you lack vision in your life, if you're having trouble seeing beyond tomorrow or next week, if you're not sure what your plans are going to be, how it's going to come together, you always have a vision of the full day in Jesus. That day is coming. And it's promised to all those who believe in Him. We need that kind of vision. God's given it to us. Verse 18 of chapter 4. We'll pick it up right there. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. Just beaming out into the full day like those crystal clear summer mornings here in Washington State. Now growing up in Southern California, I always, well, I liked the sun, but I got tired of the sun. It got old. I I kid you not, it really did. Sun through smog. Got old after a while. And so moving up here, I loved every time it rained, which was a lot. And I loved the foggy days, and and I loved when it got cold, and I loved when we got some kind of weather, because there really isn't weather in California. It's just always the same, you know. And people would think I was weird. Think Cheryl and I were nuts because it'd be raining. We'd be like, yes, rain! And they'd be like... You're obviously not from here. (laughs) Well, I love the sun after having lived here for 12 years. I have loved it the last couple of days. It's been glorious. Blue skies and sunshine. I'm reminded this is why people remain here in Washington. It's why we live here. The sun crests the Cascades in the east and caps the Olympics to the west. And it just grows brighter and brighter. And you know those long summer days. And I love those days. Think about it this summer. Should the Lord tarry and we're here this summer, think about this. When you have one of those long full days and say it's 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night and you're sitting out on the porch and the sun is still just beaming in, think about, wow, the full day's coming. We have a vision, a clear vision of that full day and in our lives... In our lives, it gets brighter and brighter and brighter as we walk with Jesus. Now, when we turn from Jesus and we walk in other directions, it starts to get a little dim and the darkness deepens. But walk with Jesus as we're going to talk about tonight. Keep your eyes fixed on Him. Walk in His direction and the day gets brighter and will continue to get brighter until that full day. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 6 says, In that day there will be no light, The luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. It will come about that at evening time there will be light. Revelation 22.5, there will no longer be any night. 
and they will not have need of the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Again, too many visions in the church today don't go far enough. The vision of the full day takes us to the end, takes us on into eternity with Jesus. And this vision keeps our eyes fixed on home, which I believe is where the Lord wants our vision to be. Now, picking up from there, verse 19. The way of the wicked, by contrast, is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. It's a deepening dark. Such that you come to a point where you can't even tell why you're falling down. It's like going to get a drink of water in the middle of the night and all the lights are off and running your shin into the coffee table. You didn't even know it was there. How'd that get there? Or stepping on a little red fire truck. I've done that. And recently thought those days were gone. They're back. You can't see in the dark and... You can't even tell what you're running into or why you're running into something or why you're falling down. It's a place, gang, the path of the wicked, the way of the wicked, is a place where there's no discernment and there's no understanding and there's no clarity and there's no wisdom and there's no vision. That's why when you see someone at a funeral who does not know the Lord, they panic. Weddings and funerals, two weirdest things that happen in a lifetime. They bring out the weird and the strange in people. Am I right, Les? That people just get weirded out. Weddings and funerals. And at funerals, if people don't know the Lord, and I've seen it over and over, just they're terrified. Because the way of the wicked, the way of darkness, you, you, you don't have any vision. You can't see beyond. Solomon is teaching the Lord through Solomon. The contrast between wisdom and folly is as sharp as the contrast between the full day and the dark night. On the way of wickedness, the sin nature blurs the lines. On the way of wickedness, deceit and hypocrisy sear the conscience. And Satan clouds the issues of our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 tells us if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But with Jesus, you know the clouds break. And the veil is lifted, the lines become clearly drawn. 2 Corinthians 3.16, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So we see this very definite, clear contrast. The path of the righteous, the way of wisdom, the vision of the full day, and the way of the wicked, darkness, no vision at all. This is the wisdom gang of the full day that the Proverbs is calling us to. Verse 20, My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart. For they are life to those who find them. And listen, health to all their body. They are life and they are health to the body. Keeping the word in my heart is like spiritual GPS. Now I used the phrase GPS uh, several weeks ago. God's present spirit. Because it is the Spirit of God, His Spirit, who leads me and guides me and directs me in life. But His Word does as well. And as I keep the Word in my heart, David wrote in Psalm 119.11, Your Word I have treasured in my heart, that I might not sin against you. It keeps my eyes open. It keeps the path lit. It is a spiritual GPS that leads me along the way, shows me where to go. But notice here, and I find this fascinating, Solomon ties these words... These words to physical health. He literally says, this will make you healthy in your body. Now, I know we like to spiritualize things sometimes and say, oh, well, you know, it's healthy. It's spiritually healthy. No, physically healthy. That's what the word means. It will bring health to all their body. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 8 from last week, we read, it will be healing or health to your body, literally to your navel. Stomach health and refreshment to your bones. How many of you have heard of Ezekiel bread? Okay, good. Have you ever ever tried Ezekiel bread? You have tried it? Is it good? Eh, All right. See, that's that's the answer we typically get. Have you had Ezekiel bread? Yeah. How is it? (laughs) You know, lots of butter. It's better. (laughs) A little bit of honey. Ezekiel bread. 
Listen to this. Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 9. As for you, take wheat, barley, beans, lentil, millet, and spelt, and put them in one vessel, and make them into bread for yourself, God telling Ezekiel. You shall eat it according to the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days. Oh, I can't wait to get to the prophets. Because they had to do some weird stuff. And what God asked Ezekiel to do was lie on his side 390 days. As an example to the people. You know, after about a week of this, people will be calling him lazy. After a month, they're going, okay, what is up with Zeke? What's he doing here? And God said, while you're lying there, I want you to make this bread. And I want you to eat this bread. And so people have gotten very excited. Hey, it's a recipe in Scripture. Ezekiel bread. And they sell it. People can get a little nutty with stuff like this. A little fruity. There's a company called Food for Life that sells this. And by the way, if you see it ever in the grocery store, it's the most expensive bread in the store, which I think is ironic. Food for Life, and on the cover, on the bag of this, it literally says Ezekiel 4.9 bread. You know, in a nice big thing there. It was intended to be eaten as survival bread, not as a tasty snack. God said, I want you to make this bread because all the ingredients of that Ezekiel bread, Ezekiel 4.9, these are cheap things. This was the bread of the poor. This is not good bread. This was, if you can't afford anything else, you can make this. And God has Ezekiel do that as a sign to the people that the Babylonian siege was on the way. I want you lying on your side, eating this poor man's bread as a symbol to the people that they are in big trouble. We come along and go, hey, let's make it into a product. I wonder if the Food for Life people really read the whole passage. Because if you go on from verse 9, some of you may know where I'm going with this. Verse 10 in Ezekiel 4 says, Your food which you shall eat shall be 20 shekels a day by weight, and you shall eat it from time to time. The water you shall drink shall be a a sixth part of a hen by measure. You shall drink it from time to time. You shall eat it as barley cake, having baked it in their sight over human dung. Mm. Just for that extra flavor. That's disgusting. And so you see that and you go, well, I guess they never got past verse 9. You know what's really twisted? They did. They did. Believe it or not, Food for Life also sells Ezekiel 4.12 bread. And on the package cover, this is like Ripley's Believe It or Not, it says, made with real human dung. Yeah, yeah. Which is why I say often, context matters. Context matters. Understand when you're reading the Scriptures, why what's being said is being said. God was not saying... Bake bread with poop and you will be a healthy person. <laughs> this is, <laughs> And I only say that because, hey, the Bible does. Context matters. It's disgusting. And that's not the kind of thing the Bible is talking about. People go get nutty and they go through Scripture. And they try. Now, there are some good recipes in Scripture. There are uh, healthy things, even in, in the law of Moses, healthy things to do. In fact, in following the law, the Jewish people were spared the Black Plague for the most part in Europe. Such that other people in Europe started to blame the Jews for the Black Plague because the Jews were the only ones that weren't dying. Well, what were the Jews doing? Well, they were eating kosher food. Eating food that the Lord said, eat this. And they did, and they were healthy. Scripture has the ability of giving health to our bodies. Not because we bake some weird bread, but the Bible does provide for physical life. Peter put it this way, 2 Peter 1, verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our, and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Let me underline that for you. Everything pertaining to life and godliness does not just mean church. Everything. God has given us all that we need for life. Spiritual life, yes, but physical life as well. The Word, gang, and the power of God, while spiritual in nature, have physical ramifications for us. Read on. Watch over your heart, the Lord says, with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. 
Watch over your heart. I've been told by my wife and my children and my parents and my friends and my family doctor and my cardiologist to do just this. Watch over your heart with all diligence, Rick. Guard your heart. Be careful with your heart. You know what I figure? The best heart health that I can get is right here. I'm not saying I'm not going to do healthy things. I'm not giving up the Pop-Tarts, but I will do other healthy things. (laughs) But this is health to my heart, gang. What do you mean? I mean, when I'm in the Word of God, my stress that's here goes to here. When I'm hearing the words of Jesus, it brings a peace to me, it brings a calm to me, and that is healthy. And it is good. Just to be in here together tonight is a healthy thing to do for your body, heart, mind, and spirit. But what's interesting about this particular verse, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life, is it busted open a huge discovery. In 1628, Dr. William Harvey wrote a treatise. And this treatise was called Demotus Cortis. Demotus Cortis, which means on the circulation of blood. Harvey wrote this treatise and took a lot of flack from other doctors and he lost quite a few patients because he contended, 1628, that the heart functioned as a blood pump feeding the rest of the body with the nutrients that the the body needed through the blood itself. And they thought he was crazy. Oh, come on. You've got to be kidding. It was groundbreaking medical science and he was absolutely right. Did you know that the heart circulates blood through over 70,000 miles of veins, capillaries, and arteries in your body. More than that, it does it every minute. Your blood travels over 70,000 miles every minute by the pumping of that muscle we call the heart. It beats an average of 100,000 times a day or 2.5 billion beats in a person's lifetime. That is one seriously tough muscle. 2.5, I'm reading stuff like this and just going, wow! You know, praise God! And the great thing also about believing in Jesus is that when you come across information like this, it just makes you praise Him more. You have something to do with it, you know? You don't just say, wow, I guess the heart's pretty cool. What's on TV? You know, you actually have somewhere to go with this grand and glorious information in creation. You look around and say, praise the Lord. Even this heart muscle that's beating is shooting my blood across 70,000 miles. I just think that's really cool. Where did Harvey get the idea to look for something like this? Right here. He's reading Proverbs. Chapter 4 comes across verse 23 and goes, huh. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Blood. I wonder if there's a connection here. And science, 2,500 years later, caught up with Scripture, with what Solomon had written before. And another thousand years before that, God declared that life was in the blood. When He spoke to Moses these words, Leviticus 17.11, The life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And God said, your blood matters. It's just amazing to me that all the way up to 1628, people didn't think or wonder why was it when all the blood runs out that people stop moving. You know, wouldn't you think in all those years of humanity someone would say, hmm, there's got to be a connection here. Well, thankfully, Harvey did it because he read Scripture. I just point that out to say the Bible, listen, the Bible is never scientifically inaccurate. Science is often biblically inaccurate, but the Bible is never scientifically off. It doesn't miss a beat. (laughs) No pun intended. It's right on target. So the Lord says, keep your heart, for out of it flow the springs of life. Now I like the King James translation of that verse. Out of it flow the issues of life. And now we get to the spiritual meaning behind this as well. Not only does the blood flow and and keep life moving in our bodies, but the issues of our life come from the heart. Spiritually speaking, Jesus said in Matthew 15, 18, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those defile the man. 
For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. Because it's not just blood that the heart pumps out. It's the sin nature. And the sin nature is very real in all of us. It's what we struggle with and it's what we deal with and it's why there's pain in the world. You know all this. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the Lord says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. So the issues of life, they spring from the heart. The heart is the problem. Sin is literally a heart problem. But Jesus goes on and says, it's out of the mouth that this stuff proceeds. Interesting because Solomon says the same thing, verse 24. Put away from you a deceitful mouth. And put devious speech far from you. J. Vernon McGee quotes an old saying in his Through the Bible commentary. I like to read McGee. He's just fun to read. He comes up with all kinds of interesting things. And the old saying is this, What is in the well of the heart will come up through the bucket of the mouth. (laughs) Some buckets are bigger than others. But the bucket of our mouth carries up this stuff out of our hearts. Eventually the mouth always exposes the heart. No matter if we want it to or not. When people sin, don't you know, when you sin, when I sin, don't you know eventually you've got to tell somebody? Eventually you say something about it. Eventually you bring it up. Because this is what our mouths do. They expose what's going on inside. We can't keep it in. The mouth is like a megaphone to the hidden things, to the secret sins. Eventually they make their way out. And so Solomon writes, man, keep the heart strong and keep devious speech from you. Put away the bucket. You got to walk straight. Verse 25, let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. Now you read that, metaphorically that sounds really cool. You know? I get it. That, you know, going straight ahead. Amy Grant has an album out, an old album called Straight Ahead. Straight ahead, she thinks, I can see your light. Straight ahead through the dark. And so we think, okay, that's what I've got to do. I've got to walk straight ahead. What does that mean physically? How do we take what is spiritually cool and understand it practically in our lives? Well, practically speaking, for a healthy heart, I need aerobic exercise. I should be on my feet. I need to keep walking. I need to keep moving. I need to walk the path. Keep my feet going. It's a healthy thing to do, but there's more to this. Looking straight ahead, watching the path of my feet works practically this way. Psalm 101, verse 3, the psalmist wrote, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away and shall not fasten its grip on me. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. When we studied this a few uh, months ago in the Psalms, I said we ought to take this verse and stick it right above our television sets. And maybe stick it right on our computers. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I'm just not going to look at worthless things. Job put it this way, Job 31 verse 1. I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Which some of the guys do all the time. See her? You know? Job says, I won't even look. I've made a covenant with my eyeballs. I don't know how he did that. You know? How do eyes sign a covenant? I don't know. He, he made a covenant. He made a promise. He said, I am not going to look. I will have my eyes on my wife and nobody else. I will not look at other women. I will not allow myself to be enticed or lured or to have sensual thoughts. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6 says, In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. And in that verse, the fog's beginning to lift a bit. Starting to understand more what this, this straight walking path is all about. Let's get more specific. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so e- easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. How do we do that? 
fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And that's it. Here's how you walk the straight path. And this is simple, but gang, it is incredibly powerful. Especially if we are to put this into practice in our lives. Fix our eyes on Jesus, straight in front of us where Jesus is. Gaze on Him. Watch Him. Turn our eyes upon Jesus. Watch literally the path of His feet. Watch where Jesus goes. The path of His feet. The Hebrew writer further down in Hebrews 12.13 said, Make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Make straight paths? Yeah. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And your path will be straight. Because He walked straight. Because His paths were straight. Because every decision, every choice He made, everywhere He went, every place He set His feet was straight on to the Lord. Straight on to God. Straight on to the full day. And so if we will just watch Jesus, guess what? We're going to walk straight. How do I do that? Watch the paths of His feet. Isaiah 52, verse 7. says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news. Good news is gospel. Good news of happiness. Who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. That verse, Isaiah 52, verse 7, is talking about Jesus. Paul will later quote it and apply it to anyone in Romans chapter 10, anyone who brings the gospel. But originally this is talking about Jesus, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings the gospel. These lovely feet belong to Jesus. But think about it now, practically. Where did Jesus walk? How did Jesus walk? You want to walk the straight life. You want to stay on the path of the righteous. Here's how you do it. Walk where Jesus walked. He walked the Galilee. He walked the Galilee, town to town. He made the circuit among common Jewish people. In the process, He was humble, He was kind, He was compassionate, He was unhurried. Watch how He did it. Read the Gospels over and over and over. And look at how He walked in His ministry. The places He went. He walked through Samaria. And He stopped walking long enough to settle down there at a well where He met the woman who had been married five times and now was living with a man. And she's the one He shared His messianic identity with for the first time. This messed up, used up, heavily burdened woman. He turned to her and said, I who speak to you am He. Where did Jesus walk? The Galilee, Samaria. He walked up Mount Hermon. When He got up there on the side of Mount Hermon, He was transfigured in front of the apostles in glory. And there was Moses and there was Elijah talking to Him. You know the story. Peter opens his bucket of a mouth. And he says, This is wonderful to see you all three here. Right, guys? Back me up on this. We should build tabernacles, one for each one of you. And out of heaven booms the voice of God. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. Jesus walked up the mountain and we get the message, listen to Jesus. He walked the streets of Jerusalem. (laughs) Squaring off against legalistic, power-hungry religious leaders with the firm word of truth. And I'll tell you what, there's something powerful there. You always stand on the truth, especially in the face of religion. The face of religion is changing. It's changing in our culture. It's not what it used to be. It's not traditionalism that's the big issue anymore. It's relevancy. Relevancy is as much religion as the old religion that the last few decades we've tried to get away from. The old traditions, you know, denominationalism that that lasted for so long and everybody was saying, you know, we have to do it this way. Why? Because that's always how we've done it. Well, that was religion. And people fought against it and tried to get free of it and, and, and come into the place where Jesus is and His grace and His mercy. Well, there's a new religious front. And it's relevancy. And it's leaving behind not tradition, but truth. Jesus walked the streets of Jerusalem and He spoke truth. And the people who were most upset by it were the religious stuff shirts. Were the ones who wanted to go their way as opposed to God's way. And Jesus says, no, there's a standard here. There's truth. Woe to you, he said to the Pharisees. Woe to you. You think you're keeping something. You're not. He 
spoke truth there on the streets. He walked the road to Calvary with a cross on His back. Watch the feet of Jesus. Watch the path of Jesus. Look at the feet of Jesus through which the nail was driven on the cross. And Jesus, and this is the greatest place to walk, out of a tomb. Jesus walked out of the tomb, glorified, resurrected. And you know what He's saying in that? You too, you too, Joanna's mother has walked out of the tomb. And her body will be resurrected. And her spirit is now with Jesus. And it's marvelous and exciting and wonderful. Walk where He walked. If you want to keep your path straight, look at where He walked. Pay attention to how He walked. Where He went. Fix your eyes on Him and run after Him. That's what the Hebrew writer encourages. Don't miss the significance of this game. Again, we're in Proverbs. We're in practicality here. Down to earth. How to walk a life worthy of the calling with which we've been called. Right? To fix our eyes on Jesus is not some vague spiritual idea. It is real life. John put it this way first. John 3, verse 2. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him. Why, John? Because we will see Him just as He is. Now I realize this promise is yet future. However, there is real principle here, application for us today. We will be like Him when? When we see Him. So as we keep our eyes on Him, it causes us to be more like Him. Isn't that what we want? Good. To be more like Jesus? Well, how do you do that? Memorize lots of verses? No, keep your eyes on Him. Look at Him. Watch Him. Study Him. Ponder Him. Think about Him. Pray to Him. The more you do that, the more like Him you become because we will be like Him when we see Him. And so to fix my eyes upon Jesus is not some vague concept. It's real life. I'm reminded of that precious old hymn I was singing it in my head today. Let me read it to you. Tell me the story of Jesus. Right on my heart, every word, tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. Tell how the angels in chorus sang as they welcomed His birth. Glory to God in the highest peace and good tidings to earth. Fasting alone in the desert, tell of the days that are past. How for our sins He was tempted, yet was triumphant at last. Tell of the years of His labor. Tell of the sorrow He bore. He was despised and afflicted Homeless, rejected, and poor. Tell of the cross where they nailed Him, writhing in anguish and pain. Tell of the grave where they laid Him. Tell how He liveth again. Love in that story so tender, clearer than ever I see. Stay, let me weep while you whisper, love paid the ransom for me. Oh, tell me the story of Jesus right on my heart, every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. That's how you walk. That's how you take steps. These are the steps to follow, and this is how you look straight ahead and stay on the straight path. By the way, that that hymn was written by a woman named Fanny Crosby in uh, the 1880s, I believe it was. Fanny Crosby wrote eight thousand hymns in her lifetime and this woman was born blind she had a vision she had a vision chapter 5 verse 1 my son give attention to my wisdom incline your ear to my understanding that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge from the lips of of an adulteress drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech but in the end she is bitter as wormwood Sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. Now we come to the other woman. (laughs) And as you know, Solomon personifies wisdom as a woman. He's already done this. He will continue to do this through the book of Proverbs. But he does it pitting wisdom against the lure of the adulteress, or literally in the Hebrew, the strange woman. This is the strange woman. Verse 6, she does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable and she does not know it. The Hebrew word unstable there is nuah. And nuah literally means staggering, tottering, reeling. Her ways are like a street drunk. 
She can't even walk straight. This luring, strange woman. The picture is unpredictability. You don't know where she's going to turn. You don't know what she's going to do. You don't know when she's going to turn on you, but she will. And just as we have a contrast in this book between wisdom and folly, the full day and the dark night, so is the contrast between wisdom as a woman and folly or the adulteress as a woman. Two women, wisdom and adultery. You know, the thing I love about Proverbs is in a world, especially today, where everything is vague and relative, the Proverbs comes busting through with absolute truth. That where sin would make things vague and difficult, Proverbs comes along and says, no, it's very clear. It's absolutely black and white. There is right, there is wrong. There is a right path and a wrong path. There is a right woman and a wrong woman. (laughs) And he goes through and just draws this absolutely stark picture that if we'll follow the path of righteousness, we will. We will be all right. Verse 7 going on, Now then my sons, kids, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Or you will give your vigor, your strength to others and your years to the cruel one. Who's the cruel one? Well, that would be Satan. And strangers will be filled with your strength, and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of the alien, and you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed. By the way, a graphic picture there of venereal disease, of dying of, of syphilis, your flesh, your body consumed, groaning, And you say in verse 12, how I've hated instruction and my heart spurned reproof. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and the congregation. And gang, that is the exact opposite of where God wants you to be. When surrounded by Christian brothers and sisters, the walls of guilt and remorse come crashing in on top of your head, caving in so that you feel like everyone around you sees that you are living in utter ruin. That's not what God wants. You know the whole guilt that keeps people out of churches, away from walking through the door? is because they fear as they sit down in lives of ruin, everybody will be looking and seeing, will know somehow. It's what keeps people from Jesus. And tragically, it keeps people away from brothers and sisters, you and me, who get it. Who understand what it's like to be in lives of ruin. Who have made ruinous choices ourselves. Who have had ruinous thoughts in our heads. Who have done the utmost of sin. We've all done it. We've all been there. We've all experienced it. And what the church body is supposed to be is a place where we embrace one another, pray for one another, and find forgiveness and restoration here. And yet, the life that that chooses this other direction, look at where you end. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and the congregation. Oh, they know. They all know. I can't be here. And it's tragic because here is where you need to be. How much better to say like Jesus, Psalm 22, 22, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Yeah, I was darkness once, but now I'm light. I was stupid, but now I'm wise. I was foolish, but now look at me. I'm saved. Praise God. Praise Jesus. He changed me. He gave me life. That's what God wants for His children, to sit around and talk about what He's done, how He saved them, not how lost they truly are. 15. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, Let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. And now we get to what he means by this. And rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. I can't believe we read that in church. (laughs) Can we say that? Can can we act? Because he's talking about sexual love. Is that okay here? We said we'd go verse by verse less, so we're going to do it. Verse 20. (laughs) 
For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked. He will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction. And in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. When is a disease considered epidemic? When is a disease an epidemic? In the field of epidemiology, it's called the basic reproduction number. You can look this up. The basic reproduction number. Quote, there is a threshold quality which determines whether an epidemic occurs or the disease simply dies out. And that's called the basic reproduction number. And it can be defined as the number of secondary infections caused by a single infective introduced into a population made up of entirely susceptible individuals over the course of the infection of this single infective. Does that make sense to everyone? A disease (laughs) becomes epidemic when the original disease gets planted among susceptible people and spreads as opposed to just ultimately dying out. The flu, every year. The flu typically is not an epidemic because ultimately it, it, it fades and dies out. Spring comes, summer comes along, it warms up, we're all better. you know. But there are diseases that just don't stop. And they pound away and they eat away from life to life to life to life. They, they don't stop. That's epidemic. The disease is epidemic when it starts to be passed along to susceptible individuals. My friends, marital problems have reached epidemic levels. And I'm not just talking about in our culture. Marital failure, as evidenced by premarital sex, couples living together, adultery, and divorce, is epidemic in the church. And... We gotta deal with this. You know, we need to talk about it. We need to get on our knees about it. Last Sunday, Les requested, could we just pray for marriages? He told me he's aware of seven marriages right now in trouble. Not all here in this fellowship, but seven that he's aware of, just less. I'm aware of several myself. Marriages that are in trouble. And you know, it's a sad indication that God's Word is not being heard. Because if we were hearing the Word, there would be a change in our hearts. And the change in our hearts would cause a change in our marriages, which is the closest, most primary relationship in our lives. And gangs, in that relationship, we even have a picture of Jesus in the church, which I believe is the whole reason God gave us marriage in the first place, was to give us a living example of Jesus in the church. So important is this, we're going to come back to it on Sunday and we're going to talk about it in depth. And we're going to look at marriage and think about it from a godly perspective. God puts His stamp of approval on healthy sexuality in a marriage. And it's marvelous. Unabashedly, unashamedly, He says, hey, this is where you should find your joy, your pleasure. Not here, but here. In your own marriage. I want as many people as possible to hear this on Sunday. And that's why I'm, I'm saving it. I was going to go ahead and just really dig into this tonight. Um, we're going to stop there. Because this is something the whole body needs to hear and pay attention to. What I would like to do tonight is ask you specifically not to leave as soon as I'm done, but to stay and pray. And we, we kind of are loose about this. Hey, if you'd like to stay, grab a couple people, pray. If you need to get home, that's fine. But I, I'm stopping a little bit early on, on purpose tonight to ask you all to give 5, 10, 15 minutes, get in groups, two or three people, and I want to specifically ask you to pray for marriages and to pray for sexual morality, premarital, during marriage, postmarital, all the way around, and pray for the stoppage of this epidemic of failed marriages in the church. Because if we're truly hearing the Word of God, I believe God calls us and is calling us to pray for healthy, strong, godly marriages. If you have in your past a marriage that that fell or failed or is broken and and, and that's going on, listen, you know, 
I, I think pastors avoid talking about these things because they don't want to offend or upset people. I don't want to do that. And it's not about trying to dredge up failures of the past because we all have them. Remember, this is the place where we joyfully praise the name of Jesus who has restored us and forgiven us. But if we don't talk about the reality of marriage and failed marriages, those who are on the precipice or our kids who are facing those life decisions, they will lose for it. And so we've got to deal with this as a family and I I invite you to be back Sunday where we're going to do that and I, I ask you to go ahead and be praying about that tonight. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 tells us inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time for salvation without sin to those who eagerly await him. And so my encouragement to you tonight is fix your eyelids on Jesus. By the way you might want to note this back in chapter 4. Verse 25, let your eyes look directly ahead. Let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. The word gaze is literally eyelids. The picture is eyes wide open. You are just gazing. You don't even want to blink as you're looking at Jesus. Eagerly await Him. Walk His straight paths because the alternative gang is darkness and deception and death. Let me pray first and then we'll break into groups and and pray about these things. Father, Your Word is powerful and practical and so critical for us in this day. Lord, even as I'm going through Timothy, reminded of what it's going to be like in the last days in which we live where false teaching is on the rise and a new religion is is rising up. Uh, Jesus, I just ask that You will pour truth into our hearts and our lives. Fill us up with Your Spirit, the Spirit of truth and the Word of truth, Father. And give us the grace to speak truth with love. Lord, I want to just begin our prayer tonight by asking for marriages. Asking, Father, protection for those marriages that are already uh, together, those that may be struggling, those that don't know it but may face some difficult days ahead. And I ask, Lord, that You will strengthen, that Jesus, You will be the bond of matrimony, that You will be centered in every marriage, in this fellowship and in the church, because, Father, we've got to be different. If we're not different, Lord, we're not hearing Your Word. And I pray for those marriages that they would be rich and full and strong. I pray, Father, for those younger who are making choices or will make choices toward marriage. That their choices will be made in purity and morality and trusting You and waiting until until marriage. Father, I pray against the idea that we could just shack up and do it our way. Lord, we walk down that dark path and we don't even see what we're about to trip over. Finally, Lord, I just I ask Your forgiveness and Your restoration. Lord, I am not one who believes, and I don't believe Your Word teaches, that the broken marriage of the past is a a sin that sticks. The only sin that is unforgivable, Father, Your Word tells us it's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We don't blaspheme You tonight, Lord. We trust and believe in You. And we are calling upon Your Spirit now to bring healing to marriages, restoration to broken hearts, and strengthen these things. In Jesus' name. Amen.